Welcome to the Wide Lens Podcast. My name is Robert Baharian, and I'm the founder and CEO of Baharian Wealth Management, AFSL 526-798. The information contained in this podcast by me, my colleague, Matt Rigby, or any of our guests may include general advice and does not consider your personal circumstances. You should seek personal advice from a registered financial advisor who can consider whether the general advice is right for you. Welcome everyone to episode number two of the Wide Lens Podcast. Uh, I am again here joined uh, with my colleague, Matt Rigby. Hello everyone, welcome back. And we're going to be covering the hottest topics in financial markets um, today or in financial markets this week. Um, we have got a ton of stuff to get through. We're going to try and see if we can get through it all. Um, I'm certain that we're not going to get through a couple of pieces at the end, but let's just see where we go. Uh, we're recording this on the 1st of February, so whatever we say could be absolutely redundant today by... <laughs> Within when, a couple of hours. Within a couple of hours when... <laughs> When the Reserve Bank meet, um, so let's let's get uh, straight into it with CPI. Yeah, look, the uh, CPI numbers obviously the topic of conversation in markets around the world, and and how uh, central banks are going to respond to that. Uh, the Aussie number uh, sitting at around three and a half. You can see the chart there, um, sitting at uh, headline at three and a half, core at two point six. Uh, the Melbourne Institute released their monthly inflation gauge, which showed the um, underlying at 2.9 as at the end of January this year. So I think that's at the top end of the Reserve Bank's range. Obviously, there's going to be a lot of commentary on it today, this week. I think um, Phil Lowe is talking tomorrow at the press club. I think the um, statement on monetary policy is released this week. So there's going to be a lot of information, a lot more clarity uh, and probably a lot more volatility as markets digest all that. Um, what do they do? Where do they go from here? You know, certainly uh, I think it was November last year that, that the governor was saying no interest rates rises in 2022. You know, economic fundamentals don't warrant it. Uh, let's see how much he changes his, uh, his tune. What do you think the RBA will do days. today? Look, they, they might. Uh, they're obviously not going well. I don't think they're going to raise rates. I'd be shocked. Um, a reduction in their, their bond buying program, I think, is inevitable. Whether they can it, I guess it's when they can it. So do they, uh, my, my guess again is that they would like to end it before rates start to rise. So that may give us a bit of an idea. If they say they're going to finish the bond buying program by August, then back after the year, you know, that probably opens them up to raise rates. Um, yeah, Excuse my ignorance here, but we're, we're sitting headline at three and a half and core at two point two and a half. What's the problem? What's what's the what's the band, What's the RBA's inflation band? Well, I think it's the trend, right? Two to three percent is the band where it's smack in the middle. Uh, I mean, you look at that bounce back from last year, which you would expect, or twenty twenty. But um, look, look, where, look where we're bouncing from, like. From negative, from, that's basically. Right. Yeah. So it, it, it's to be expected. I think that the issue, which we spoke about uh, in our quarterly webinar, that the issue is, uh, I guess it's twofold. What, the first part is uh, a lot of it is supp sorry, supply chain driven. So, you know, the, the 
lack of ability or the inability of a supply to come in, which is impacting demand and prices going up. That's certainly part of it. Um, and, you know, a lot of pent up demand from COVID lockdowns, a lot of money saved. Again, that's flowing into it. Uh, you know, I don't think raising rates is going to impact that. Mm. Yeah, certainly not by a great margin. Um, and on top of that, you've got house prices rocketing, which raising rates will impact. Uh, but you're right. Which is not necessarily a bad thing. No, it's not. I mean, it's not sustainable to have house prices going up 15, 20% every single year. I mean, it just can't happen. So um, the the rate rises will be aimed at cooling the housing market and maybe a bit of a shot across the bow to get expectations back in check. How much do you think... If the US is front-running, so the Bank of England's come out and there's speculation the Bank of England's going to raise four times the US, raising four to five times, I think, markets Well, I think Jamie Dimon said six to seven wouldn't surprise him this year. That's a lot. That's insane. Um, Interestingly, though, uh, Jim Reid, Deutsche Bank's chief economist, came out this morning. Um, We haven't got that chart here. Maybe we'll talk about that next week. Uh, But he talks about an average uh, during rate hikes. The average rate hikes have been, what, 280 bips? Yeah, that's right. Going back, I think the low over the last fifty or seventy years. That number. Uh, that's that in number, the first year. Of, right. Of, okay. That number really surprised me. But but going back to um, the what, what what the US is doing, could it be at all possible that the the what the US does that then has ripple effects and implications around the world? So it doesn't necessarily mean that every central bank around the world has to, on their own accord, make movements with policy. Uh, in their country, but what if the US was started to move? Could that cause? Could that have ripple effects and do some of the work? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you would argue that you know them talking about it is already having an impact. Hundred I mean, percent. We're talking about it now. Everyone's talking about everyone in financial markets talking about rates going up, um, and, and so that's building in an expectation that rates will, and maybe that starts to curve behaviour. Um, but with the Fed raising rates in the in in the US. Uh, I think, again, it just rams home that it's inevitable rates are going up. So maybe that begins to change expectations. Uh, the other interesting thing, though, is let's just say, for example, the, the Fed does raise rates three times this year. Between now and August or, or now in September, they raise three times. Um, that's going to put a lot of downward pressure on the Aussie dollar. Uh, it'll make the US dollar stronger. It'll make imports more expensive, which is inflationary. Um so that may, in a roundabout way, force the Reserve Bank to start acting, maybe a little bit before they'd like to. Um, so, yeah, look, there's, there's a lot to play out here, a lot of interesting things to, to come. And, would, would their uh, bond buying program not be priority number one before rates, surely? Like, I feel like they've got, like, a tool in their hand already and you can use this tool but they're kind of reaching into their toolbox to grab something else. Like, wouldn't that be the first thing that you start uh, – Toggling? Yeah, I think so. And that's what, that's why I said I think they like to have that done before they start raising rates. You know, get that out of the way. Get that intervention out of the market. See mm. where markets naturally land um, and then raise rates from there. It also buys them some time to see, you know, is part of this still that transitory inflation? Is, is you know, some of the high numbers from early last year are going to start dropping off? Mm. What are we replacing them with? What does that annual number do? And it might sit. That core number might just sit between two and three, uh, which you know will afford them a bit of time to just 
you know, it raise rates, but but at a much slower pace. Let's let's sort of move into uh, as we talk about inflation. Um, Business Insider had this article where uh, they said there are, here are two charts that explain why the stock market meltdown and Bitcoin slump are correlated. And that crypto is not a safe haven asset like gold. <laughs> um, so they go on to say investors have flocked to the cryptocurrency sector with the objective of gaining exposure to returns that are uncorrelated to traditional assets like stocks, bonds and precious metals, as well as hedging against rising inflation. But they go on to say that there is evidence now building and it's, I think it's pretty clear that cryptocurrency is not an inflation hedge. It is not a replacement for gold where I, I feel like the last few years the the narrative has kind of been that gold hasn't um, gone up in price as much because there's now this substitute asset class which is cryptocurrency yep. and Bitcoin more specifically that is now taking away a new cohort of investors that might be worried about inflation and, in, and instead of them buying gold, they're now buying cryptocurrency and that's why cryptocurrency or Bitcoin more specifically is going gangbusters and gold's not really doing anything. Yeah. And look, it's interesting. I wonder if, um, you know, gold is as unregulated. You can buy it. Anyone can buy it. Anyone can store it. Crypto, you know, Bitcoin has those same sort of elements. I wonder if that's where it's come in, uh, you know, where those similarities are, the, you know, the whoever, the, the gold bugs are more about keeping their money out of the side of the government uh, and that's where that, correlational link with bitcoins come in we've got this chart let's get this chart up here um where we're looking at um the uh, price of oil gold bitcoin and equities and we've we've plotted up the miski world um and the miski us miski uh world in uh, purple on this chart and the miski us here in in gray the green line is bitcoin now that's on the right, that's on the right hand side. Uh, where's gold? Gold's the, the the blue line, and you can see it just really since 2020. In fact, I almost feel like since Bitcoin started running, gold's been falling. I don't know if you can see that um, at at 2020. 2020 yeah. Um, but I, I still feel like Bitcoin's just this early. It's so early on, and the swings are so wild that I mean, without going into complete statistics and trying to work out what the correlation is on these asset these asset classes. Yeah. I don't know, I just feel like it's maybe too early to tell as to whether or not, I mean, you could pick out anecdotal evidence as Business Insider have and pick two points in time where um, Bitcoin has not done what people think it's supposed to do. But maybe that's not what it's supposed to do. Maybe what it's supposed to do evolves and it changes and it depends on who's buying it and when. But then again, um, most people that are holding Bitcoin are not selling. Yeah. And look, I, I remember reading a stat that something in the order of 40% of all Bitcoin is held by 2,500 accounts. Um, so it's not as widely used or available or held, or held as other asset classes. So, you know, getting wild swings is, is probably not a big surprise. Uh, and if you bought Bitcoin at $60,000 last year, uh, sitting at what are we, 34 today? Uh, Why US. is it getting polarized? Like, what? What is it? Is it rates? It, it, I mean, it seems like the only thing we can point to, right? That's the that's the anecdotal evidence. I mean, it's yeah. You know, the the correlation with equities is certainly seems to be increasing. 
Um, mm. I think, you know, Christopher Joy wrote in the uh, Financial Review last week that, uh, or could have even been earlier this week, that, um, you know, the correlation between Bitcoin and equities is above 50%, you know, whereas it was much lower earlier on. Uh, and I wonder if that's as more hedge funds and, and private equity firms are getting into Bitcoin, uh, whether that's adding to market volatility yeah. within that asset class. Um I mean, we'll know in hindsight, but but anecdotally, you would suggest that as rates are rising, uh, you know, riskier asset classes are, are coming back in price. Do you still see gold as a um, commodity that should be sitting in portfolios? Oh, look, I, I I kind of struggle with what what I mean. What does gold do? I mean, it's jewelry and it's shiny, expensive paperweight. <laughs> I mean, I think oil. If you look at this chart, I mean, again, oil got smashed during the, the COVID. But if you look at it as a hedge against inflation, uh, it might actually be better. It has a utility. You know, we need it despite everyone going to or wanting to go to uh, renewable energy. We're yeah. still going to need oil for decades to come. Uh, it's still going to be in high demand. Uh, and I guess the other thing with, with oil as opposed to gold or, or you know, maybe Bitcoin, um, you know, OPEC, can, can change their production rates so they can manipulate the price. You know, the price is down, so they reduce production. Prices up, maybe they increase it slightly. So, um, yeah, gold, I'm, I'm probably not a huge fan of. What, what's, like, why don't people look to treasuries or bonds um, to manage that risk or even manage exposure to risky assets as, as the hedge? Like, wh- why are we trying to mitigate all of these risks when trying to mitigate the risks naturally means you're going to cap your upside yeah or you're taking on other risk you know you, you, you're diversifying yeah, yeah, yeah. your risk yeah. you know you've just got different risk um yeah i mean i guess we're seeing what's happening in in the fixed income market as, as rate expectations are changing you know i think a great hedge against inflation is good solid companies with great earnings that oh, have yeah. price i income. agree we I talked mean, about McDonald's. that last week right we talked about the s&p 500 companies and their profit margins, yeah, and how they've been able to absorb yep. input costs, yeah. Uh, the you know the um, CEO of McDonald's came out recently and was talking about yeah you know, they've been able to pass on those uh, input costs and and maintain their margins. He acknowledged that they won't always be able to do that, but but they have been able. I to wonder so far. when when that what like what point in time do consumers actually say you know what we're not doing this? I guess when there's a cheaper alternative, right? So where do you go? You know, Macca's has always been been seen as a value food option. Maybe not great for you, maybe tasty, but uh, I guess at some point maybe people start going there less than not mm. going there at all. You know? I, I still think when as money continues to be free, I think people are happy to continue to accept price rises. Once money become goes from free to cheap to meat, mid-level somewhere, whatever that word is, yep. I, I reckon that's the turning point where people are going to stop accepting um, price rises at, at companies. Yeah, and, and wages is a big factor as well. I mean, if wages are going up at the same pace, then that's fine. But if they're going up more, uh, oh, sorry, they're going up less, prices are going up yeah. more, uh, that's, that's a big thing. There was also uh, uh, an article I read out of the UK, there was a study showing that the lower-priced products, so that the value end of supermarket uh, products had gone up some 50 to 100% in some circumstances over the last year and a half. Um, whereas higher value stuff 
had had stay relatively the same. So maybe that's more a margin compression. That's interesting. Uh, at, at that higher end and, and lower end, they don't have the margin to be able to absorb those sort of price increases. So I don't know. I don't know when that was. Procter and Gamble came out recently, and we don't have this here. So they talked about their higher end products. They're more expensive nappies. Yes. They're more expensive toothpastes. They've seen. Uh, sharper rises in the growth of those products relative to the lower lower value products. Wow, that's interesting. Uh, and if, like I think Procter & Gamble is a pretty good proxy for the consumer, right? Absolutely. I mean, they just... The breadth of their product portfolios. Yeah, it's enormous. It's enormous. Mm-hmm. And so I think that was really insightful. But again, that was as of a week or, week or so ago now. Again, I don't know when you read that, but that's that's what Procter & Gamble came out to say. Again, whether that that is because people do have money at the moment and we looked at um we looked at savings rates recently last week i think it was that still looks very very noisy until we have some stability around that as we have until we have some clarity around what's happening with interest rates i think that might might still be the case but it is surprising to see higher value products doing well yeah it is And, and i think the savings rate you're right it is noisy um you know if you're in melbourne like we are we're you know, only hours away from the next lockdown. Um, so it's hard to gauge that. So, you know, we're in and out of lockdowns, as was Sydney to a some extent last year. So the rest of the country didn't have those same sort of lockdowns. So looking at saving rates in Australia, it, it's all over yeah. the place. In, in six months' time, hopefully that normalises. But I would imagine over time it'll go back to its long-term historical norms and we get this big spending boost in the meantime. Let's talk about um, ETFs. Business Insider had a article... Um, Australia's ETF industry continued to break records through 2021 as market capitalization reaches a new high of $136.9 billion. The industry managed to grow a further 44% over the course of the year. Can we, can we talk about this whole concept of passive investing ETFs um, versus more traditional active stock picking type or style of uh, investing? I feel like when people talk about um, ETFs, people talk, people naturally think about, oh, you're buying an index and you're a passive investor. Yeah. Can we maybe just talk about how that's evolved over time? Because I certainly don't think uh, passive investing is what passive investing used to mean five years ago, In ten years ago. In terms of ETFs, well, or passive, just generally. Yeah, well, first there's there's the active passive, and then there are. We, we're now moving into what was managed managed funds to now ETFs. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think the default in everyone's mind is when you say ETF, people default to, oh, so you're investing in an index. index. Yeah. I mean, you even look at the, a lot of active guys, active managers have ETF versions of their Correct. active fund. Magellan is, is a great one. Fidelity do it. Yeah, there's a lot of them that do it. Uh, and it just exposes them to a different market, I think, ultimately. Do we think that the ETF industry is going to take over the traditional managed fund industry? Wow. Uh, well, I tell you, if the traditional managed fund guys continue to produce ETFs, then I think it's probably inevitable. Uh, I mean, look, there, there, are, there are a lot of advantages. You know, if you're in an unlisted managed fund and you want to get out, you sell today, you get your cash in a week. You know, that, that's a major draw. Uh, you don't know liquidity your selling price. Or illiquidity. Illiquidity. And yeah. you don't know your selling price. You know, it's, it's, it, you don't know because prices aren't struck till the end of the day. So you've got yesterday's price as a reference. 
you know what the market's done that day, but it's, it's not a, a straight, you know, one for one. Um, whereas a, a, a listed ETF of an active fund or an index fund, you know your price, you can get out today, you can get in today. Um, you know, I just think in, you know, in this current world of, of you know, fast money, of, you know, not wanting to wait, I, I just think ETFs have a huge advantage. Yeah, I mean, uh, Amazon Prime can deliver a product to you quicker than what a managed fund can <laughs> price their, their unit price out. I mean, it just shows what type of world we're living in. Uh, I feel like that's a very old school way of kind of the way we've been, what we've been used to over the last 20 years. Yeah. Um, my, my sense is that, that will change when you do have, when you do have managed ma- fund managers moving from unitized unlisted to um, exchange traded funds. I think, I think yeah. that says something. I think we're going to keep heading in, in, in that direction. Um, and I feel like the things that are kind of going to left behind are probably um, unlisted private assets. So if, whether you've got um, yep. real estate or private equity, that, I think they'll continue to remain in that sort of more traditional form. Yeah. But then again, you know, there's nothing to say that um, holding uh, some of those units on the blockchain going forward will make probably make it easier for unit holders to trade amongst each other. It doesn't necessarily mean pricing is going to come quicker to anybody, but certainly to trade, it's going to be a lot quicker. Um, the verification process is is probably a lot more robust. Um, so I think I think that's going to uh, evolve. Yep. Bloomberg had some numbers um, in in a in a piece that they wrote not too long ago, uh, and they said it's only a matter of time before passive assets overtake active in US based mutual funds and ETFs. So currently it's sitting at around four, around 40% um, of assets that are passively managed up from 30% uh, at the end of 2015. So it jumped quite a oh, bit. Okay. Fixed income's currently sitting at about 30%. And in fact, I tried to have a tried to find the numbers. It's really difficult, but um, the kind of gauge that I got was around 40% of assets are man- at the top end are managed around the world are passively managed. Yeah, the other thing I think is that passive uh, or ETF investing doesn't necessarily mean passive. So you look mm. at VanEck, you look at BetaShares, and yep. we look we use a number of those in our business. And just because you're buying one of those ETFs, it doesn't necessarily mean you're buying a market cap weight index no. or market weight index, right? There are ETFs, and this is probably not news to a lot of people, but it's probably news to some people, is that the exchange traded funds, how they're set up now, allow investors to take a point of view. It allows, and it may be a bearish viewpoint, it may be a bullish mm-hmm. viewpoint, it may be a geographical viewpoint, it might be a sector viewpoint, but you can go in and buy and 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 trade on a point of view that you have. I mean, the other thing that a lot of fund managers probably used to hang their hat on was uh, intellectual property. And our method of analyzing, sorting, filtering stocks, so much of that is quantitative based. And you've got the likes of BetaShares and VanEck, just to name a couple of them that are, that are bringing out quant-based ETFs. So yeah. why, why, why should I go and have to pay 150 basis points for this intellectual property where I can, I can get it in an ETF at 25 bips or 30 bips, I can trade it now, and I'm kind of executing on the same thing. And a number of these ETFs I feel like have got a pretty good track record. The numbers stack up. Um, it is absolutely quant-based and it's low cost. I, uh, it, I it, think it seems cost. so compelling. 
Cost is a, a great point there. Uh, and I think that that's another massive driver behind the ETF market, active or passive, uh, is that cost pressure to come down. And, and, you know, I think if you look, you know, here in Australia 10 years ago, no one really knew anything about super. And, and you know, I, I mean that quite literally, 80% of their population wouldn't have known their super balance or how it was invested. Uh, you fast forward to today, that has absolutely changed. People are more engaged. Uh, you know, there's there's been a lot of push by the ETF industry about cost and, and what the impact of cost can do over time. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, active guys, um, unlisted, the costs have to come down. And some of them have, you know, some of the T row fidelity, they are relatively lower, but then there are other ones that, that are 100%. not budging on their, their costs. Uh, and I think that's going to hurt them in the long run. Um, let's look, so, j- just maybe to, to wrap up on that. I mean, can, you know, the question we, we're asking ourselves is that can, can passive eventually overtake active? I, I fundamentally believe that it's a matter of time. I don't think it's, I don't think it's if, I think it's, it's more about when. Care to, care to put a date on that? <laughs> Come on. Uh, well, according to, according to PwC's research, I think it's 2025 or 2026. Oh, wow, really? Okay. That ETF assets under management over, uh, overtake 50% and it swings the other way to yeah. be in favour of, um, okay. of passive over active. Um, the only thing I would say is I don't think active stock picking uh, will ever go away. I no, think there will think always right. be this desire to try and outperform or have this inclinational belief that will I know no one else can do it, but I can do it. Mm. And so this this uh, this attraction and this fascination and love around trying to do better than everybody else that is ingrained in human DNA for uh, thousands of years. And so for that reason, I don't think active management's gonna gonna go away. But active management doesn't necessarily mean it can't something can't be listed as an exchange traded fund. Yep, no, I agree hundred percent. And I think yeah, there are some markets where active management makes sense. But look at fixed income. Uh, fixed income sits at thirty percent. Yeah, is 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 passively managed. Yeah, that's right. So that, that's significantly lower than than the equity side of things. Uh, but equally, uh, allocations typically much more to equities than they are fixed sure. income as well. So, um, yeah, look interesting. Uh, look, another thing that's uh, sort of piqued my interest is property prices. Um, you know we're Australians, we love property. Uh, it's, it's it's part of our DNA for whatever Although reason. I haven't seen any new, any new TV shows on like the, <laughs> the block and stuff like that. Yeah, didn't one of them get canned? I don't know, it might be I a COVID know. thing. Um, but yeah, look, there was a really interesting article on Bloomberg about uh, vanishing infantry. Now this is US-based, but, but we've had a look at, it, at some charts and there's very similar patterns here in Australia. So there's a couple of things I'd, I'd note to start with. Um, you know, with really low interest rates, it's been much easier for a homeowner to go, all right, we need to upgrade our house. Instead of selling, we're going to keep this and make it an investment property and we're going to buy, you know, draw some equity out and go and buy another is that, one. Is that what ha- is happening in the US? It, it's definitely what's happening in the US. I reckon something in the order of 9 million properties, which I think from memory was 8 or 9% of single home stock in the US has gone from uh, owner-occupier to investment. Um, so you've had that trend happening, you've had rates reducing, but you've also had a larger cohort of buyers coming into the market. You know, the, the 25 to 33, 34-year-olds are now starting to come into the, the market. The old millennials. The, <laughs> the old guys. Uh, so, 
you know, you've got all of this happening at the same time. And potentially we're seeing a uh, you know, setting up of a huge wealth or a generation of, of wealth gain. Um, you know, something I, I noted in the US and I lived there a number of years ago and I was shocked to learn that you could get a 30-year fixed-term mortgage over there. Fixed. Fixed, like fixed, fixed, and it's easy to get out of it. Uh, so right How now, is it easy to get out of? Uh, I, I don't know, but it is. So we, we had a house over there. Uh, we sold it, closed the loan, no and did you have a And did you have a long-term mortgage on had that? a 30-year fixed rate mortgage at, and you ju- at three and a half, I think it was, and that was you know, seven years ago. Um, and, and there were no penalties for getting out of it uh, to refinance your loan. So, you know, the, the 30-year fixed rate was... What was, rate the, interest, was, what was the variable and interest rate, though? I'm just curious. Uh, like, it, m- maybe you, you breaking the fixed term was good for the bank. Yeah, possibly. Yeah, I can't remember. It was a while ago. But um, 30-year fixed rate's now over there at 3.75. Mm. So if you're buying, you're getting a 30-year fix at 3.75 and inflation's at 6%. For if, now. If your wages are going up at, let's just say, 4%, 3%. Mm. I mean, that's that's a no-brainer. Mm. Um, and you've got property prices going up. So th- If you could lock a- in a 30-year mortgage here at 375, would you? Uh, yeah, it's a great question. I was actually thinking about this. At what point would I lock it in? Mm. Um, what, uh, three-year rates are at 3% now? Uh, it's pretty appealing. See, I, I don't mean, know. You've I, got zero interest rate risk. Well, I don't think it's. Well, well that, that's right. But I think the risk you run is, is you lock yourself into thirty years. A long time. It's ridiculous. It and is. And locking yourself into something for that—that—that's that, the risk that I would see. Is yeah. that I'm. But if you could refinance as you can in the US without penalties, no, th- well, that's another. Where's the yeah. risk, right? Yeah. Um, you know, so that—that that was really interesting. Uh, I think the the, the thing that really jumped out at me. This is not 2007, 2008, where you had the adjustable rate mortgages, the arms, you had the ninja loans. Yeah. It's, it's very different yeah. this time around. Um, and credit ratings in the US now are much stronger and lending to credit scores are, are much higher quality now than they were yeah. back in back before the GFC. They are. And, and we've seen that here too. You know, the banks have had to increase their capital reserve ratio, the, the, the lending uh requirements have become a lot stricter so um yeah we've certainly seen a lot of change positive change i'd say on the lending side uh but you know the lack of stock and interest rates falling has has really led to you know this price rise so we've got this chart here of total property listings from uh i think this is uh sqm research and this is australia right this is australia and and we noted that uh 2022 so january 2022 at no point since 2010 has the stock on the market been lower. Yeah, and we don't have the data to go back earlier than 2010. And no. so that's the lowest it's been in the last 12 years. Le- level of stock. Which when you think about what's happening, you know, baby boomers are downsizing. Maybe they're not. Maybe they're, maybe they're uh, retaining and drawing equity out to buy. I don't know. But um, it, we looked at a chart. Think last week, which was showing investor loan uh, finance, loan yeah, applications invest, were yeah. going up and, and owning a rock dropping, admittedly dropping from very high. Um, so this is one to certainly keep an eye on over the next. What? what year like, or why so. do you think is it is it the low interest rates that are that are that are that are keeping property stock low? We talked last week um, um, about 
a, a buyer's agent talking to us about the fact that even he would be very surprised to see any new property listings coming onto the market now. And his point of view was that no one wants people walking through their houses. Yeah. But the the only thing I'd I'd say to that is is that that, that's all good and well, but during COVID, I mean, we can see some numbers here. Um, So 2020, since 2021, listings have dropped even further. People couldn't go through homes in 2021. People were doing... uh, Online, online inspections. Online auctions, online inspections. You yeah. had to literally walk around. Um, my parents sold their property in 2021 and we literally, the agent would ask us, say, hey, can you can you stand on your street, record, walk into your front door <laughs> and just, just start recording your lounge room, the ceilings and... And that's what we had to do. That was a virtual property inspection. Yeah, right. And people were, were buying properties sight unseen. Yeah. And yeah. so we couldn't walk through properties then. We can't walk through properties now. I, I'm just – I don't know if that's the only driver right now in, in respect to people not listing their property. Yeah, look, I think it's a factor and, and yeah, as with everything, there's, there's a number of factors. But if you sell or if you're buying – let me start that again. If you sell – you have to buy. But if you're buying, you don't necessarily have to sell. So I think that's a factor. But also think about... You don't have to be uh, buying when you're selling. I mean, I could own four properties and sell two of them. So I don't have to buy. Well, that's true. Yeah, that's true. Um, so how many people own four properties? You're, <laughs> the, the, me right you're redundant. <laughs> I'll just leave now, shall I? Um, but the other thing to think about is supply chain, supply chain disruptions and how much longer it's now taking to complete a new build. So, so we've got supply coming on sure. at some point, but that, that completion date is getting pushed out, which is pushing out future supply coming onto the market and so on and so forth. So, you know, I think there are a lot of factors that, that kind of come into play here. But um, look, at, look at listings over 180 days. It has yeah. dropped significantly. I mean, they are down to where they were 2010, 2011. So it looks like all the old stock out of the market. The, the way I'm reading this is that a lot of the stuff that was listed is gone. And, I mean, you, you'd naturally expect today the most recent data point to be under 30 days because as stuff gets added on you, they're under 30 days. Sure. 30 and 30, under 30 days, 30 and 60 days seems to be pretty consistent. Fairly stable, yeah. Whereas then when you look to... 60 to 90, 90 to 180, 100, over 180 days. It, yeah, just, I mean, you can see that the, the blanket numbers, the lowest it's ever been, but I just wonder if it's just this filtering process from what was, what was being sold and nothing has since come to market. But it still looks like stuff's coming onto market as we speak today, but we just don't have that backlog it, that, keep, that props this, this up. It keeps it up, yeah. And, and, and maybe... Um, stuff's just selling really quickly and so you don't have that over 180 day number so high to, to, as a buffer oh, so I don't know time, time's going to tell and with the benefit of hindsight we'll know what, what, what's been happening there yeah. but, and I was just anecdotally I was away um, we went up to Marimbula uh, and we spent a bit of time in Marimbula and sort of in the Bega Valley Shire there up in and around Pambula and just talking to people um, and a lot of locals and just people we met in our travels they were talking about um, so at our neighbour where we were staying just started chatting along. We found out that they owned one of one of the um, a cafe in in the centre, 
And they said, I will come by. And, and they said, oh, we're packing. Um, and I said, where are, you, where are you guys going? And so they've been renting this unit where we were next door. And they said, we, you know, we've had a child and, and we need bigger, bigger space. There's not enough room. The problem is, is that we, don't, we can't find anything to buy. So we've had to go out further out uh, inland right. uh, and buy a piece of dirt. So she said, we're not going to be able to build for a little while because of supply chain issues and a whole, whole bunch of other things. What, are they staying in a tent? No, they're not staying in. No, no. So they're going to rent. Right. Uh, they're moving from where they are. They're to a bigger bought. rental. They're, bought, they're moving into another rental. And they bought to build. I don't know their entire life organisation of <laughs> their story. Um, and so I asked them, what's the market like? And they said, we can't find, there is absolutely no stock on the market now. Any, any wealthy people in and around that south coastline of New South Wales has bought another property or another two properties. And what they're doing is they're just renting it out to Airbnb. But no one can travel. Uh, everyone's going local, so they're, they're collecting uh, the rent. And we're hearing this a lot, you know. We're hearing this New South Wales, Victoria, along the coastlines, but uh, it seems to be anecdotal for the most part. Well, I mean, we, we, looked, at the, we looked at the numbers, so we'll get, we'll get to this chart in a second. Um, and she was also saying that um, the, what they're seeing is a lot of city, uh, city folk coming in and buying a coastal property. So... You know, people coming in from Sydney who've got a bit of money are snapping up holiday rent, holiday properties on the coastline and it's because they're buying them for cheap. Yep. And, you know, you, you, would, you would head up to Marimbula and you'd buy a beautiful property for four hundred, four hundred dollars $450,000 10 years ago. You're at $1.8 million now. Yeah, and wow, it is just geez. gangbusters. So I jumped online, real estate. I couldn't find anything. Literally, you won't find any, anything more than a two-bedroom unit for sale up there. Wow. Um, so we let's let's bring this chart up. So we, we look at total property listings in um, uh, South Coast, South Coast, New South Wales. Thank you, Matthew. <laughs> um, and you can see the total property listings is almost non-existent. Total property listings at the peak in two thousand and twelve, and I think that's probably had a lot of um, people with just maybe geared up to their eyeballs. 2012 was the bottom of the, um, was the, bottom of the property market. You're sitting at around 11,000 uh, property uh, for sale. Here we're sitting at around 2,500. And it was an incredible drop. And it's been on a downward trend ever since then. I mean, it's just fallen off a cliff in the last year and a half. I mean, it's, it's, we were looking at it and just shocked. Yeah. But this played out. We, we ran a few other regions, New South Wales, Victoria, and it's it's played out everywhere. It's, you know, it, but West, it's, it's regional mostly. Yes. So Melbourne City seems fairly stable, pretty normal mostly. But any regional area you pull up, um, it's just it's in the the, the demand is huge and supply is totally huge. dried up. Yeah. So do you think like stocks, property being if you like a long dated asset, and as rates as rates rise, do you think naturally there is this? Um, uh, negative correlation where rates rise, property prices fall. Like, is do, do you think that's that's a thing? Yeah, that would be. Or is it gearing levels? Borrow, like, what do you think it is? That would be my gut feeling. As rates go up, uh, people can afford to pay less. Uh, they're less likely to buy that holiday house, that that investment property. Um, that that's my gut feeling, but. We went to the charts. We had a look at this. Let's bring it up. Um, so Australian property prices and interest rates. Uh, this is a chart by CoreLogic. And uh, so what it's showing here is the red line is the uh, five 
major capital cities in Australia, uh, the aggregate number there, and then the Aqua line, the one one year percentage change of the RBA cash rate. Uh, it goes back to 1980. Back to 1980. And look, the correlation, I mean, there, there's something there, uh, but I, I certainly would have expected it to be, uh, sorry, I say something, it's a, it's more positive than than I would have expected. Um, you know, you can see 1990, uh, a, a drop in prices and drop in interest rates. And and, and you go, all right, well, oh, a I recession. See, I see what you're saying, yep. yeah. A recession, uh, it's all gone to the shit. So rates are falling. Economy's imploding. Obviously, prices are going to fall. Um, but but you know, it, back then, at any point where there's been major interest rate declines, the, there have been rises, but certainly not to the extent or as quickly as I would have expected. I don't think it's perfectly as correlated as what you would probably read in the headlines, where it says rates are going up, property's going to go down. Yeah, I mean, there there are almost with anything, rates are going up, property prices are going up. Yeah. I mean, you look in 2010, rates are falling, property prices are falling. 2011, um, prices are increasing, rates are increasing. So I, I think like mentally we try and find these short shortcuts to, to try and find a pattern in the data. And look, we haven't crunched the numbers to find correlation numbers, but I suspect it's probably going to be high, but it's not a perfect correlation to say every time interest rates rise, property also goes down there are and have been i suspect will continue to be instances where rates are rising and property prices or risky asset prices continue to rise i mean it's it's probably a reflection of a strong economy and for a period of time i suspect asset prices will continue to rise until we hit some sort of peak and everything shits itself and it falls from there on in yeah i think you know rates you can absorb the first 10 rate rises and then it starts to get really hard. Up. Yeah, I am just making that up. But but you know you can absorb the first X number, and then it starts to get harder. And then you start going, all right, well, do we need to sell that beach house, investment property, whatever it is? Um, but the thing you talked about is you're, you're of the view that interest rates can't go back to the levels that they have been in the past. I think it's. I just think levels of debt uh, and serviceability will naturally limit the the level to rate to which rates can go to and unlike in the us where they've got 30 year fixed rates so locked in so rate rises don't have the impact over there that they do have here on existing homeowners who have fixed rates uh here most people are variable mm. and you know 80 percent. i don't know the number but i would guess it's at least that high and if you do have a fixed rate it's it, probably unlikely you've got more than a five-year fixed rate so um you know i, th- I think that Interest rate rises here have a, a much quicker impact on spending uh, and because of the, of the levels of debt, uh, that impact is going to reduce mm. economic activity a lot quicker and limit the I, I can't, level. I can't see any reason that I would disagree with you. The question is what is that level? I don't think anyone knows. Let, let's, let's move on. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, the start to the year has been... I don't fun if you're short the market, I guess, but but not so much fun if you're long. Uh, so this chart, uh, so we're, we're looking at the NASDAQ and the extreme movements that we've seen uh, historically, but certainly over the last uh, couple of weeks, last month. Um, so th- this chart here showing the, the NASDAQ closing price versus the 50-day moving average from 2009 through to 2022. Um, and it's looking at the standard deviation. So at three standard deviations uh, 
um, typically you're in what you might say is an extreme extreme territory. Yeah, territory. Right. Um, so we're sitting at about 3.3 at the moment. You can see there those extreme drawdowns. 2020, we're all aware of that. Uh, the end of 2018, for those who don't remember, that was when uh, the chairman of the Fed, I think it was Powell at the time, came out and basically said, we're going to raise rates and we're going to raise them a few times. The market went into a tailspin. He came out early 2019, like literally the first or second day of January 2019 and completely changed his mind and said, no, we're not. We, we've changed our mind and just markets kidding. went off. Yeah. <laughs> just just, just messing with you. Um, you know, so so we've had very few instances where the NASDAQ has fallen to this level. Uh, and each instance, as we'll look over on the next chart, uh, often, not each instance, but often we've got a fairly strong response. Uh, and, and we're looking one year out, you know, one week, one month, three months, a bit of a flip of the coin. I mean, it's a pretty short time period. But if you look at one year out, uh, you've got an 81% positive result one year out. So, um, you know, I, I think... Again, kind of to our comments previously that, that the markets are overreacting in our view, offering potentially a good entry point. Uh, I don't know what the return will be over the next 12 months, but yeah. Or whether in fact it'll be positive because there is a probability that it will be negative. But 19% chance, right? That, that it won't historically. be. Historically. Um, yeah, so a one in five versus a four in five. I mean, I'm happy to take those odds. Uh, we know over long periods of time, markets do well. Uh, I'm not investing for one year, I'm investing for many, many more. Uh, so, you know, if you if you got cash on the sideline, uh, do your own research. This is not a recommendation, but it, it is a, a pretty good time. It's looking pretty attractive to, to get a little bit of money back in the market. So what's that? Let's look at that next chart then. I think this is validating um, and further to the point before. Uh, yeah, so look, um, when the NASDAQ had a, uh, a fairly major decline and then uh you know four plus percent uh the intraday intra intraday and then what it did this is quite interesting what it did on that day or from the low to the close so let's just take 97 as an example so the intraday low four and a half percent down but the change on the day so that's the low to the close was actually nine nine point four percent so you've had this big drawdown an enormous rally intraday to end positive um 2008, a couple of examples there. Again, some pretty big moves. And then the 24th of Jan, a couple of days ago, uh, the, the NASDAQ was down 4.9% at its low. And then from the low to the close was, was 5.8%. Crazy. Uh, they are pretty big numbers. Maybe equally interesting is what happens three months out. You know, you've still got a fairly good chance that, that the markets are down very short period of time, but one year out, again, you're looking at about an 80% chance. Pretty pretty strong numbers, aren't they? Uh, they're very strong. Um, so we'll see how my uh, um, my ETF pickup a couple of days ago yeah. will go. Uh, one year from one year from <laughs> Two now. Two days in, looking good. So, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, it still look interesting. I, I guess there's a lot of people out there saying markets are overbought, uh, oversold. Uh, I think I saw Goldman Sachs recently, uh, JP Morgan have come out and said you know similar things. Um, you know, Warren Buffett's adage, be fearful when others are greedy and greedy when others are fearful. And I think fear is certainly ruling the land at the moment. Yeah. Um, and they, these charts, are, thanks to the good folk at, uh, at Bespoke, um, talking about uh, interest rates, 
Um, I, Bloomberg had this chart, which we'll bring up now, uh, talking about bond traders bringing uh, pricing in a four rate hike uh, this, this calendar year. And so the thing that we, you and I have been talking about is that we think that the first couple will probably do a lot of the work. We're already seeing what they're just their, them talking about this is, is doing. The Having an impact. And so what markets are doing is already pricing in these changes in, in rates. Um, I think it's going going for four. Well, it might even be five rates, um, rate rises now. Well, according to Larry Fink, I think it's six or seven. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know if it's going to go that far. Um, but again, Jim Reed came out with the chart this morning talking about um, a number of hikes in the first year. Again, I wonder if that's more of a historical thing and whether or not we have a much lower band and lower natural threshold as to how much rates um, can rise. But my, this is my gut feel. I, I think markets are overpricing and again extrapolating one or two hikes. I, I think two or three are probably going to do a lot more have a lot more of an impact than what, what a lot more people think. Yeah. It's almost a competition to see how many you can justify. <laughs> you know, I can justify seven. I think Jamie Dimon came out and said six or seven this year isn't a surprise, wouldn't be a surprise. Um, uh, but yeah, I think it was the, the, the governor of the Atlanta Fed came out and said, you know, a 50 basis point rise or a 75 basis point rise, he'd be supporting that as the first move, which the first move, um, wow. uh, which is is pretty pretty incredible. So, you know, I think that that would certainly send that shot across the bow for markets. Well, let's have a look at um, we'll bring this chart up from from Bloomberg tightening without turmoil. And basically what the article was talking about, you look back in history and we've we've done this as well. Um, this is just showing the the data in a, in a different way. Is looking back in history, um, it, it shows us that um, the stock market doesn't actually perform as poorly as whatever. I don't know why everyone talks about this because when you take out the data <laughs> and you show the data, it's actually quite it, it's quite compelling. You and I talked about how earning stocks in a in a high inflationary environment is actually not a bad thing because they can absorb. We're seeing it all already now. Yep. But what this chart is showing is the average annualized return for the S&P 500 during the Fed rate hike cycle. So 54 to 57, you've got a, a, a um, an annualized return of 13.7%. And the list goes down. I mean, the, the bad ones in 72, 74, where you had inflation in the US sitting at above 7% for a prolonged period of time. Yep. Um, in fact, the, I think the average uh, return has been about 23% wow. during rate hikes. But in and amongst that, there is a lot of volatility. Last week we talked about it. This week we're talking about it. A lot of charts coming out from Bespoke talking about over, um, um, bear, over bearish sentiment, what markets have done subsequently. So, look, I, I don't have a crystal ball. The only thing I can look back look at too is what has happened in the past. But, again, just because it's happened in the past, it's not a guarantee for what's going to happen this time around. But I, I'd probably take the odds on this one and, and say that, we're, we're probably going to fare a lot better than what, what most people think. Yeah, I mean, there's 12 instances there and one negative. Um, so, again, the Although odds... Although these aren't real rates of return. So I think that's probably sure. something that we should just take with this with a bit of a grain but, of salt. But the odds are pretty good. Um, yeah, that's, that's really interesting. That actually surprised me uh, about that consistency. Um, yeah, and I guess that, that leads into kind of uh, the next thing I, <laughs> I was looking at and I kind of alluded to it earlier that, uh, you know, some of the big brokerage houses 
not that they're motivated to say buy the dip, but they're all saying buy, buy the dip, you know. Um, an article by Bloomberg quoting Goldman and Citi. Uh, I think we had a bit of a chuckle at this, that Citi strategists echoed the settlement, the sentiment of buying the dip in a note today, this is a couple of days ago, saying that their bear market checklist, <laughs> which, which screams various fundamental factors. So Bob yeah. in the office. LOL. Hey, Bob. What's the checklist saying? <laughs> no, we've still got, we're, we're good, bye. We've still got two things not checked. So um, there's, there's certainly a lot, of, a lot of data, a lot of charts saying we've gone too far. You know, we, we've overreacted. And I think if you look at Apple and Microsoft and Google uh, are due to release their earnings today, I think, um, you know, the, the big companies are still making really good money. You know, McDonald's, you mentioned Procter Gamble before, are able to pass on some of these, you know, cost pressures. For now, these, these for now. Import costs. For now. So, again, early in this cycle, uh, I don't think it's as, you know, much of kryptonite for the market as, as what the general population seem to believe. Later in the cycle, I absolutely think that it's more likely. But, um, you know, right now uh, things are looking good for a a a strong rally. The S and P five hundred just we 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 put this chart um, together and we just bring it up now, which shows the S and P five hundred. Uh, it's bottomed out as you can see on the far right hand side. But we are this this sell off in the S and P five hundred, which is I think about nine percent. I don't know if it actually hit ten percent. Uh, yeah, yeah. Co- correction correction territory. Um, is ten percent correction or bear market? Ten percent correction. Twenty percent twenty percent bear, but not nineteen percent. No. Um, but we're only back to where we were in October of 2021 in the S&P 500. Yeah, which I, when you told me that, I kind of thought you were joking. But no, you're right. So like three right months, four months ago, we're back to where we were four months ago and everyone's losing their minds. But I think it's probably more so, less so in the S&P 500, more so in the Russell 2000 where you've got uh, your small cap stocks, where you've got interest rate rises on the horizon and the ability for some of these companies to maybe absorb, maybe not be able to absorb some of these hikes yeah. is really where we're seeing it. Yep. And we're, so the Russell 2000 is probably the hardest hit. We're back down to where we were in the Russell 2000 in January of 2021. So we've literally stripped off 13 months of gains in that particular index. And the NASDAQ is back to where we were in May of 2021. So I feel like the Russell 2000 on one end, you've got the NASDAQ on the other end, then you've got the S&P 500 in the middle, which yeah. has a, a collection of more diverse um, companies, if you like. Well, diverse and they're larger. They're more established. They've got, generally, they're making money and got better balance sheets. Um, but, I, you know, I think this speaks to diversification. You know, if you're all tech, uh, you've had a great few years yeah. and now, you know, it's coming back a little bit um, to May last year. So, um, you know, it, it, they talk about uh, loss-making companies get hurt more during rate rise and inflationary periods. Uh, those with strong balance sheets and, and positive cash flows. But that makes are, are total sense, to right? Like if, you, if, if you're sitting at an interest rate of zero, I can, I can take my money and give it to you. With, and if you're a high growth company and you're not making any profits, you're, you've got a strategy to grow and you're going to start making money in five or six years' time. I can ride that. I can take the money for nothing and give it to you. But if it's costing me 3 or 4% to, to borrow that money yep. and then to give it to you, I can't wait five, six, seven, eight years for you to start capitalizing and, yeah. and doing what you ever got to do with your business. And so naturally the valuation on your company is going to come down. But if you've got the likes of where we saw um, Apple and Microsoft already report earnings, and I've said Google's t- today, today. Um, 
Atlassian reported um, a, a day or two ago now. Like the and I, and Bloomberg had this article where um, they said market turmoil is ultimate test of what's real and what's not. Ultra speculative assets are leading the way down, but robust corporate balance sheets could put a floor under prices. Yeah, I think that's really interesting, and I think it's quite profound to the extent that there's this. Again, we talk about markets within markets, and the the era of just everything going up, I think, is probably done and dusted for now. Yep. And you, looking at quality companies, uh, I think I think they're gonna. I mean, we're seeing it already now, right? I mean, we just talked about the S and P. Uh, 500 not falling as much as the Russell 2000 or or the Nasdaq. So I think there is going to be this segregation. But at the moment, we are seeing some of these big companies take a bit of a hit. Nowhere near as what the likes of Netflix and Peloton are falling. Um, just just finally, um, stocks trading on fumes probably aren't keeping the Fed awake. Equities just doubled in three years, buoyed by the Fed's monetary largesse and willingness to bail out investors whenever times got tough. Now, losing a fraction of those gains in the name of controlling the cost of living will likely to be seen as a small price to pay. And I think that's an interesting yeah. take on what's going on right now. I think it is too. And I think, you know, a couple of years ago, uh, if you know, 2019 or 2018, when, uh, you know, Powell came out and said, we're going to raise rates, markets collapsed, nothing happened, you know, nothing adverse happened in the real economy, but in, in financial economy it did. Uh, he came out and pivoted and, and changed his viewpoint. They cared back then because the economy wasn't as strong as what mm. it is right now. And I think now they're they maybe even almost happy to see markets come off a bit, some of that speculation, that mm. frenzy come out of it. Um, the irrational exuberance, I think, as uh, um, Greenspan coined many years ago, is, is starting to come out of it. Um, and and you know to to that earlier point about um, you know profitability, it, it, those companies will continue to make good money uh, if they've got pricing power. They'll continue to mostly or, or maintain their margins, uh, keep making good profits. Maybe the PE isn't as high, but you over time you'd think that stock price would keep going up, and they will weather this storm. They'll get through it. It's those that are relying on debt financing to keep going. To your point, that uh, they're the companies that are going to struggle. And I think those companies that can continue to innovate. So you, do you want to maybe just talk about um, um, Apple? Yeah, it was Apple, and that article that we came across looking at um, Apple's new uh, payment technology, which allows sort of small businesses, you know, whether it's food trucks or coffee vendors or whatever, to be able to use their technology rather than using Square or whatever they're called now, Box Block Block. Um, so I think, I think that ability to be able to continue to innovate. So I don't know, you know, we talked about Peloton last week. Yeah. We talked about Netflix's ability to continue to innovate, bring new services to the market. You know, Peloton bungling us, bungling some of their inability to maybe gain, gain their subscriber list, whereas companies like Micro or Apple, for example, who continue to bring new technology to the market, I think that will give them an opportunity to continue to grow. Yeah, absolutely. And, and yeah, this is really interesting. Um, so, this, so this article was referencing that, Basically, Apple are looking to convert their phones into payment processing payment terminal. machines. Yeah, basically. Um, so, Apple bought um, MobiWave for a hundred million bucks back in 2020, and this was clearly what they were looking to do. So, firstly, for a company to just go out and buy a hundred, you know, spend a hundred million dollars on an acquisition for something they're going to implement two years later speaks to their, you know, position and, and strength and, and everything they've got going on. Um, 
but it's a huge challenge to block, you know. So what does it do for block? So in Australia, block isn't as big as what it is in the US. So in the US, block is the, the, the literally the white square you plug into your iPhone and it becomes a, a payment reader. Um, a lot of people, a lot of vendors use it here. Oh, do they? Yeah. I haven't seen a lot. Yeah. Maybe I don't get out as, as much as you do. Rob. Don't drink enough coffee as much as <laughs> <like> that. <laughs> hey, you do. Um, you actually don't drink any coffee, so I there you go. Drink coffees. <laughs> hey, Starbucks, it's okay. And you don't drink uh, beer. Gluten-free beer. You're, you're the alcohol-free beer guy. Uh, anyway, so, um, you know, I think th- this is a big challenge to, to Block. So th- do Apple prevent Block from plugging their little square thing into the phone now? Uh, do they block that? Do they make any, you know, Block, I'll use mm. them again. Do, make, do they make that process go through Apple Pay? And so they route them through their payment system. Uh, look, I think this is this is really interesting if you're Block or, you know, smaller operators around the world, you're probably a little concerned. I think Block fell uh, 3 or 4% on the announcement, maybe even more, 5%. Um, but, but it just speaks to the power of Apple's services business. You know, everyone's standing around waiting for them to come out with their new device and gadget. Mm. But what they've done is quietly built an enormous... Uh, services business that generated, you know, $19.5 billion last quarter, which was up 24% on, oh. you know, year on year. So that that's massive. And, and I think they'll continue to do that. I think, you know, they've got their arcade business. Uh, so I, I wouldn't be surprised to see them go down the gaming route again. Peloton, we talked about that. You know, do they buy Peloton and, and feed that into their app, uh, into their Apple Watch and their health ecosystem? They've got so much optionality. Mm. Um, the car, I don't know, it's been rumored for about 10 years. If it ever happens, great. If it doesn't, it doesn't really matter. It's not going to change their business. It's just another reason to, if you own an iPhone, you keep buying iPhones. Um, yeah, so look, uh, you know, bigger companies getting bigger, um, just uh, generating more cash. The when when Square originally came out with their little readers, the, you know there was always talk about um, it, the fact that's going to throw the the classic old merchants out, and I think it did. Like you know whether you go to food trucks or food festivals or any small vendors, not that many people are pulling out a you know an ANZ <laughs> big thing, you know a, a payment terminal. Like most yep. people are have got the the the, the Square. Um, reader on on their phones that yeah, that right. did change, um, and in fact, it's more expensive. But people are willing to pay because they don't have to deal with all this clunky crap and dealing with banks, yeah. uh, etc. So, yeah. you know, um, yeah, maybe I think I think Square or Block probably need to be doing something. I don't know how they're, they're going to work this around because um, you know having dealt with you know terminals. Um, even the square reader, it's you've got to carry stuff around. It's super yeah, right. simple, yep. but you still got to carry um, stuff around as well. The only thing I'd say is that um, when you when you do set though that setup up, you still need to have some sort of ordering system as well. Right. So Square can sync up with your um, with your with your iPad, for example, and you can your, your menu up there. So I don't know how that's going to work with Apple. Um, I could probably I could very easily be missing something here, but this is what's exciting about um, the likes of a of an Apple and a Microsoft versus a much smaller speculative tech company that's, you know, promising all good things but not really delivering on anything yet. And that's, um, you know, we might just wrap up here. Uh, and I think a really good summary is uh, this has been thrown around, so we just decided to pull the chart up, which was uh, Kathy Wood's ARK ETF versus Berkshire Hathaway. 
Um, and you can see in orange the ARK Innovation ETF, which is buying a lot of these tech-heavy, tech-orientated uh, stocks and has done tremendously well over the course of 2020-2021. And they accumulated a ton of assets under management during that time. And meanwhile, um, uh, Warren Buffett was getting absolutely clobbered and crucified for having missed the boat again. And the same thing was said back in 2000 when we had, yep. again, that tech yep. uh, tech rally and Warren Buffett was left behind. And then when that tech boom collapsed, it was a huge rotation from growth to value. And then Berkshire Hathaway just went on an, on an absolute tear from there on in. I'm not saying Berkshire Hathaway has gone on a tear over the last 12 months. I mean, they've done pretty well. Uh, it's more relative to the ARC, the, the ARC uh, ETF. And I think what this really speaks to is, is again, I'm not saying like investors shouldn't have technology and innovation in, in their portfolios, but just, just jumping on um, the, the hottest thing right now and jumping on whatever bandwagon is at that point in time. I think for a portion of your assets, if you can afford to like go for it, just roll the dice on it, but understand that um, it's probably not going to be the, well, it shouldn't, be the thing that you gamble your portfolio on because this is what happens. It literally gets cut in half within within 12 months. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think it also speaks to um, the level of assets that that uh, the ARK Innovation Fund had accumulated and and how much harder it is to reinvest in, you know, so if you're worth, if your fund's worth, I don't know, $5 billion, $10 billion, uh, it, to get into those smaller companies. $22 billion. All right, so $22 billion. So you... Uh, to, $22 billion to allocate a portion of that portfolio to a small company that enough of an allocation that's going to move the performance of your fund, you have to buy so much of that company, you end up pushing it up itself. So, um, but, you know, I think to your point, uh, you know, that diversification uh, with Berkshire Hathaway have done very well, although I will note their largest holding is Apple. Uh, so that certainly hasn't Yeah, but it's not, it's not Tesla. No, it's not Tesla. Whereas uh, I, I think the Peloton. largest largest holding in the ARK ETF is Tesla. Uh, yeah, I think you're right. No, I think you're right. Um, but they're not completely without tech, but their tech exposure is profitable, well-cashed, strong balance sheets. And that's, yeah, that's what's done well and could well be the driver of the markets over the next, you know, six, 12 months. Um, let's move on to recommendations as we wrap up because I think we've covered a ton of stuff here. What do you got for us this week? Uh, I don't know. Uh, what? Uh, so I was uh, testing for my kids the new Halo game right. on the Xbox. I had to. Yeah, I couldn't just let yeah. them play yeah. it uh, randomly. Uh, so what, what's the what's the age like threshold for Halo? Uh, I, I didn't look. <laughs> so <laughs> I just played the game. And said, it's not look, for your I've, kids. I've got, I've got to jump on and play it. Well, here's what's interesting. Maybe it should be lower because what took me about four hours took them about an hour and a half. Have uh, they played to, it before? No, didn't, they haven't played it before. Was it Microsoft that just bought um, the Microsoft, company? Yeah, Microsoft. It's now a Microsoft Studio uh, game. Uh, so um, maybe that speaks to I should stick to Mario Brothers <laughs> and, and not something like uh, Halo. But uh, it was interesting. It was fun. Uh, I do recall showing my age here when the original Halo came out. Do recall sitting up to ridiculous o'clock in the morning playing it with uh, with housemates, um, but yeah, no. Look, it's a fun game if your kids are old enough, uh, or if your you're so are. inclined. What what is the age limit? Maybe, I've got, I've got no maybe idea. I need to block it. Uh, if someone could help me with that, that'd be great. Oh, but, uh, okay, it's PG. Oh, there you go. 
it's shooting aliens. Okay. I mean, it's not real. I don't know. Anyway, so so I did my research uh, well, m- till well, about one in the morning, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> look, it was fun. My my seven year old's teaching me how to play Minecraft. Oh yeah. So it's like no, you gotta you gotta hide from the zombies at night. I'm like no no, yeah. go and chop down the trees. Build a and house. It, it's yeah. So I don't even know what I'm doing. Uh, I thought I did when I grabbed the iPhone. Like I've got I don't know what he was doing. He's doing. <laughs> but um, we just started watching on um, Netflix. Have you seen the series Manifest? Uh, I haven't watched it yet, but have I, you seen it pop it's, up? It's on my list. Yeah, absolutely. So, it looks good. so manifest. Um, there's and no it's a series, right? Yeah, yeah. There's three seasons. There's no spoiler alert um, here because the very first episode really go, gets into it. So it's about a bunch of people that leave Jamaica, uh, and the airplane goes through some sort of turbulence during the flight, um, and you know it almost looks like they're gonna they're gonna crash. Uh, the the pilot manages to um, stabilize the plane. They land. They're, they're, they're trying to land at JFK, and they get redirected. They, um, when they land, they find they work out that they've landed. So they took off like in 2013, and the series was made in 2018. So they land in the US in 2018. Right. And so no one has aged a day. That's some that turbulence. Everyone was on on the plane, <laughs> but the whole world has changed. Like all, all these people's husbands and wives and parents have moved on. They thought they were. Oh wow! Missing. So it reminds me of that Malaysian airline. Remember the Malaysian oh, airlines yeah. that went that went, went missing? Yes. Um, so we've just was that st- five years ago. Maybe not quite. Uh, I don't know. Probably probably more. Um, so we've just started watching it. Um, we're we're well and truly into it. But basically, what happens is, and this might be a bit of a bit of a spoiler alert. Everyone on the plane has these synchronicities amongst each other. They start hearing voices in their oh. head, and so I'll hear a voice, and you'll hear the same voice. But we don't know who each other are. But the series connects these people, right. um, and there's there's some cops in there as well who start saving some people's lives. It's really really interesting, really okay. fascinating. Um, it's probably probably one of the better shows that I've seen lately. Right. Um, so we're well, we're well and truly on that one. That was on my list, and we've managed to start start watching nice. that one now. But that was 2018. Um, I've got a threshold. Anything older than 2017, I just feel oh, like it's too old. Can it? I won't even go to it. So what season are you up to now? Just like first season. Binging it? Okay. Just the first season. So we'll do like three or four episodes. Maybe a night. I've just started. Yeah. And right. So it's like, what time is it? 11.30. Correct. Plenty of time. <laughs> uh, all right. It's firmly on my list now. I would oh, definitely check that out. Definitely check that one out. All right. I think that's a wrap. Um, anything else you want to cover or we're good? I think we're good. I think the people have heard enough of us for this week. Right, Hopefully we'll, we'll find, be back next week. We'll find out what the RBA um, yes. has said in, in an hour. All right. Yes. Thanks for joining us again. Um, we'll we'll wrap it up and we'll catch you next week. All right, cheers, guys. <laughs> <laughs>